Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of St. John Climacus and the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up this evening with step number three. If you remember, we uh, just finished the previous one on detachment and uh, read the first paragraph. And so we're on paragraph number two on 63. And uh, as always, John, in the first paragraph or so, defines uh, what he's talking about in any particular step, whether it's a virtue or a vice or something along these lines, where he's talking about the break with the world. And so tonight's on exile, and which certainly for the monk would have been uh, a part of their life, leaving the world and entering into the desert or entering into a monastery. And uh, I think it will be our job, certainly, to think about how, how is it that we understand this in our own life? And, and in the light of Christ's teachings in regards to our uh, participation in the things of this world, how we're to live our life. And, and so we're picking up with number two, as I said. Those who have come to love the Lord are at first unceasingly and greatly disturbed by this thought. As if burning with divine fire, I speak of separation from their own, undertaken by lovers of perfection so that they may live a life of hardship and simplicity. But great and praiseworthy as this is, yet it requires great discretion, for not every kind of exile carried to extremes is good. So even while seeing it as something necessary and uh, important for us in our life as Christians, he realizes that there can be extremes that uh, bring certain dangers with them, even for one who's embracing the monastic life. You know, what, are, what is the intention behind uh, exiling oneself from the world and for the monk in such an extreme way and for all of us from maybe separating ourselves from the things that would uh, draw us into uh, the life of our, our passions or increase them or draw us into the ways of the world, distract us from our relationship with God. And uh, there are extremes, he warns, that it can lead to a kind of isolation or maybe that we are simply seeking to isolate ourselves from the world uh, that we, uh, you know, find ourselves as not really doing it for the love of God or love of others uh, or the church, but rather simply because we want to be left alone and that we prefer being alone. Uh, but it also brings certain dangers in the spiritual life as a whole. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but those in particular who had embraced the life of an anchorite, uh, who would be living on their own, there's always a danger of, of falling into a particular sin and having no one there to, to pick you up, no one to support you in the spiritual life. And also the danger of uh, succumbing to delusions that uh, one would become the focus in this kind of spiritual battle for the anchorite of uh, having placed before them, you know, images of angels or of saints and perhaps thinking in their own mind that it's because they have sacrificed the things of this world that they, they are being given such gifts when in reality there are temptations to pride. And so uh, John would want anyone contemplating this uh, to really consider well what it is that they are, are doing. And the same is true for all of us. Uh, I was reading a little something today from uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox theologian. He was, he was talking about that sometimes we, we'll rail against, you know, kind of secularism within the world. 
And yet he says that in reality, that it's often the, the distortion of what Christian life should really be about, that this, what we see emerge within the culture, and it's a kind of distortion of the, the things that we should love and prize as Christians, but they've been distorted by sin. And so we find ourselves criticizing something uh, that really, you know, came from God, but has been distorted because of our use of it or the way that we're seeing it. And so our critique of secularism, you know, is a way maybe even of projecting uh, something that's within our own hearts uh, onto the world, when in reality we are as filled with it or, if, uh, or even the source of it in so many ways by the way that we are living our life, not fully given over to Christ. And, uh, and he'll warn about this kind of thought to a kind of vainglory here in the next paragraph that a uh, person who embraces this lifestyle uh, can fall into. So paragraph number three, if every prophet goes unhonored in his own country, as the Lord says, then let us beware lest our exile should be for us an occasion of vainglory. For exile is separation from everything in order to keep the mind inseparable from God. Exile loves and produces continual weeping. And exile is a fugitive from every relationship with his own people and with strangers. So it could be an occasion for vainglory that one can hold in one's mind. Well, I've seen what is ugly within the world. And so I've taken this path and it's placed me on a higher, higher level than others. And so rather than it being an act of humility or of desire that one would separate, as John says, oneself from the world in order to have one's mind inseparable from God, it can really be something that is, again, self-focused that uh, a kind of rigorism, uh, that we are embracing asceticism to elevate ourselves in our own mind for a sense of self-esteem, even though it uh, has a religious color to it, nonetheless, it can be vainglory, vain it can be pride. And so too for the, for the monks. Um, he says, exile is separation from everything in order to keep the mind inseparable from God. And I, I thought that was a, a good line for us to think of, that, again, exile is more about the desire for God and intimacy with God, that we are setting aside distraction, simplifying our life and not allowing the things of life to, to, to pull us away from the holiness that God has called us to, but also the radical intimacy that he's made possible for us with him. And so for us living in the world, as we think about something as exile, we might even begin thinking about it in terms of simplifying our life, of being able to look at our life and to see the things that perhaps we have around us simply because we have access to them. And uh, especially in the West, we have so many things that can distract us, that can pull our attention. And they aren't necessarily evil things or bad things, but in terms of our relationship with God or our relationship with others, they can diminish our attention. They can fragment our attention. And so we have so many things coming at us. And I think in an age of computers in particular, when we have access to so much information, curiosity is something that sort of can pull us 
to one place after another simply because of the amount of information that is at our fingertips. And so we've probably all had the experience of scrolling and scrolling and going from one link to another. Uh, and having that simply be something that occupies our attention or satisfy, satisfies that yearning uh, for curiosity, for information. And so simplifying ourselves, maybe separating ourselves or exiling ourselves from those things that can diminish that attention that we would give to God or the intensity of our prayer or diminish our desire for God, we should look at closely and say, is this something that uh, is a blessing in our life or is it something that simply fills our life in our minds? Uh, Robin, you have your hand up and have for a while. Do you have a question or a comment? Well, I, I actually mm -hmm. have a question. Um, okay. for, those of, for those of us living in the world, mm -hmm. um, the desire, the want to mm -hmm. exile just from everything and everyone, not because you're running from it, mm -hmm. but because you honestly have a desire just to be alone with God, mm -hmm. not for recognition, I mean, I don't have anybody around me to recognize me. That's not why. I just want to be alone with God. But, you know, I'm married and I'm an aunt and, and, and I'm a friend. But sometimes you just just want. Is it wrong to want to exile from that? Well, you know, I, I think even though we live within the world, you know, all those things are good. As you said, married and you're an aunt and there's nothing contrary uh, of entering into those relationships fully. Uh, there's nothing contrary to loving God and giving yourself to God. In fact, it's often in and through those very things, certainly marriage and being a good aunt and a loving aunt and uh, guiding your nieces or nephews in the life of faith or simply by the example of your life. But I think as we, we enter more and more deeply into prayer, there is going to be a growing desire for that intimacy with him and the longing for the silence and solitude with him. And this isn't going to detract from our relationships with others or shouldn't if we are entering into it uh, in, in terms of our relationship with God, that intimacy is closely tied with solitude, that we, even in marriage, that the, the periods of solitude that we enter into or say if a husband or wife goes to adoration or spends time in silent prayer, they are in, you know, reflecting upon their life, they're reflecting upon their primary vocation, they are seeking the grace of God to, to love him and to love those that he uh, has placed in their life. And so that solitude, that deep silence should then bear fruit of intimacy, not only with God, but with others. And so I think when we feel that pull towards intimacy and we don't want to, to simply embrace it without scrutinizing it in the same way that John wouldn't want somebody embracing the life of exile without scrutinizing it. Am I simply withdrawing from relationships because certain elements of, of them are difficult or, or demanding? Or, or because, you know, I'm not all that social or, you know, for other reasons, or is it really the desire for God? And if it is, then I think God provides us the grace and even helps to open up space for us to spend that time 
in silence and prayer. And this is why earlier on I connected it with simplifying our life, that if we have this growing longing for intimacy with God and depth of prayer, we cannot constantly be adding one thing after another to our life. When we add something, we have to pull something out. Otherwise, our, we find ourselves running, you know, at this frenetic pace and just, you know, having our minds and our hearts, you know, disintegrate in the sense that we are being pulled in so many different directions. But when we simplify things and uh, we see the things that have greatest value in our life, and if our relationship with God is what we see is everything beginning with and ending with, then uh, we are going to prioritize that in such a way that we have that time for solitude and silence, and then are able also to freely enter into those other relationships. And it's interesting, the moment that we begin to desire that, both of those things, and enter into them, we find that time reemerge in our life, or we begin to see the things that maybe we've had as uh, sort of the part and parcel of our day-to-day -day life or, you know, aspects of our life that have been there for decades and we really haven't given much thought to. And, uh, but once we begin to say, all right, I'm trying to foster this relationship with God, then we begin to see, all right, I'm going to set this aside. There might have been joy that I've had with it in the past. It may have been fruitful in some ways. But as this longing for God begins to grow, then I begin to let certain things uh, go, to the, go to the side, go to the margins. And I think it becomes clear to us. I don't think it becomes, it's, it's not as though we have to scrutinize or agonize over it. I think we begin to see very clearly where we waste time and that first, and then where perhaps we are just uh, busying ourselves, maybe even as a defense against dealing with reality, not, not just the reality of our day-to-day -day life, but God as reality, as the meaning of our life, that we can run into certain kind of resistance within our own hearts, both psychological and spiritual, that prevents us from opening our, our minds and our hearts to God and entering into prayer. Sometimes, as you probably know, prayer is difficult. Sometimes we don't want to do it. Sometimes we'll avoid everything. We'll avoid doing it all at all costs and we'll find things to fill time. And so the fathers are often pretty clear about that. There are times we have to force ourselves into that solitude, into that silence in order that that depth of prayer might emerge. So I know that was a lot to throw at you for that, that question, but I, I think just to be able to look at your heart and to say, all right, is God here calling me to a deeper prayer life? And uh, does that really mean that I have to cut these good things out of my life? And my initial response to that would be no. You know, if it's not excessive, if it's not sort of out of the norm, there would be no reason to do so. Unless you were caring for your nieces and nephews like 18 hours a day and, you know, falling into bed at night, you know, I don't think there would be a problem. Anthony and then Sam. This keeping the mind inseparable from God, is he referring to cogitation, a constant stream of thought, or something else? Is the mind more like noose, or heart, or merely presence here? I'm thinking it's not cogitation, right? Since that can be exhausting, since the fathers remind us 
of our imaginations can be willingly and unwillingly be the playground of the evil. Yes, you know, very good thought. It's not, we don't have to be constantly talking. In fact, as you've mentioned, that that can be uh, become an obstruction. It's not that we have to be filling God in with all the details of our life, although our talking to God freely is certainly not problematic in the spiritual life. But I think as we are drawn more and more deeply into that intimacy with him, the language begins to shift for us from our, you know, articulating in our mind or even verbally uh, to silence. And we've talked about this before, Isaac the Syrian saying, uh, silence is the language of, of heaven, of the kingdom. And that uh, it allows God uh, to speak a word to us that is much deeper than any word that we could hear or say or read. It's a word that would be equal to himself. And you know, in this way, for this reason too, he's also given us the scriptures, but also the Holy Eucharist where we receive into our very being that which is beyond comprehension, but we're able to comprehend in and through the gift of faith. We are drawn into the mystery itself and can experience this gift that God has given to us of his love, of his life, of his, of his word. And I think, you know, in the West, but, you know, not just in the West, I think throughout the world, we are often driven by words and more and more, you know, I, I think, and we've become uncomfortable with silence. And often I think a big part of the spiritual life is allowing ourselves to become comfortable with it. Uh, even if it starts out slow, you know, 15 minutes of silence, allowing our, you know, our minds to move from multiplicity of thought to simplicity, simply on to God or on, onto Christ himself and allow ourselves to remain in that. And then if our thoughts wander, then to draw us back, they often will use the word mind. And we find the same problem within the Philokalia too, that things just don't translate well into English. And uh, I'd have to look at the Greek text for this, but it, I, I would likely think that it would, would be something like the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul. Specifically, the fathers tell us is that we want to still the mind and the heart, the noose, and in order that we might listen on this very deep level. And the short little arrow prayers, or like the Jesus prayer, are the things that help us do that, to draw the thoughts from that, you know, uh, you know, multiplicity that we struggle with, especially after a busy day or in the midst of the day, back, bring, bring them back to God where we desire them to be. Sam. St. Paul talks about sin and death as dominions where there is a dominion of sin, a dominion of death, or in other words, that we are born into the lordship of sin, the lordship of death by virtue of original sin. And thus to be delivered as a Christian represents being transferred from one kingdom to another, to be transferred to, to the kingdom where Jesus is Lord and has dominion over our lives, where our lives no longer belong to ourselves, our bodies no longer belong to ourselves, they have been ransomed at a price. And thus, I'm wondering if the language of exile is a restatement of a deliverance process where it's not that those things in our lives are bad, but they require his lordship in order that for the goodness of those created things to be received and revealed and shared. 
being intentional about how we use our time or our phones or our approach to our relationships, that we are actively inviting him to continually conquer our attraction to those things, exercise his dominion over them, beautifully stated. And I would, I would agree uh, with all of it. And, you know, St. Philip Neri had a little statement that, you know, Christians are, you know, that we are citizens of the kingdom, you know, that this is our, our homeland. And uh, we are to live our lives within that frame of seeing ourselves as being sons and daughters of God. And uh, we often become very much focused and attached to the world rather than living our lives in light of what we become in Christ. Uh, not just something off in a distant future, but uh, that we experience, uh, especially within the liturgical life and the gift of the spirit. And we should live our lives liturgically or see them liturgically, that we are constantly being drawn into the mystery of God himself, of the Holy Trinity, and that we are being drawn into this oneness with Christ, becoming one body with him through the Holy Eucharist, in order that we might begin to experience now the, the reality that Christ has made possible through the Paschal mystery. And we often will lose sight of that. When we don't look at our lives in a sacramental way, a liturgical way, when we don't see the world in a sacramental fashion or with an incarnational view, you know, as created by God that we uh, come to see and experience him in and through the creation, then we can be, our view of our life and of reality of relationships can become very myopic. We only see them through this very narrow lens and with a very, very limited meaning. And so we often don't see the mystery of the other person who's standing right before us. You know, often we'll see only the surface and with our critical eye that's often driven by our sin, we see them as more of an annoyance, you know, or, you know, or a bother rather than seeing the, the presence of, of God within them. And I've often thought this at baptisms, you know, that there should become almost, there should almost be an overwhelming urge for us to genuflect, you know, think, acknowledging what is taking place there at the baptismal font and what this child becomes uh, in and through the sacrament. And, uh, and yet we don't, you know, it becomes sort of like this rite of passage, this thing that is done and but not acknowledging the, the, the great mystery that has taken place there and the life that this little infant has been drawn into and has become an heir to the kingdom of heaven and the treasure house of all of God's graces. And yet we don't see that. So getting back to your point, this whole idea of exile and he'll state it specifically, this is not hatred of the world and it's not hatred of family in the sense of hatred in the way that we see it, you know, that we are disgusted with others or we don't look upon them with love, but it's our overpowering love for God and desire for him that allows us to see those things for what they are, especially when they perhaps pull us away uh, from God or from giving ourselves over to him fully. And certainly we know in the lives of saints and we perhaps experienced in our own lives that 
people have told us to call it or, you know, you're becoming too serious about this or be becoming a fanatic. And you don't want, you know, be careful not to become too serious about this whole religion thing. And I think this is where kind of exile comes into place, not necessarily rejection, but we allow ourselves to engage those who have the same desire, you know, who run, seek to run the race with us, have this longing for God. And so when we begin to do that, and when we seek to begin living the gospel in its fullness, uh, the exile, in a sense, is almost going to take place, you know, in, in terms of our comfort with entering into certain things of life, but also uh, being received by the world. I think we've gotten used to this idea of trying to fit in to the culture and not, not to, you know, not to put forth our faith in such a way that we seem like we're, we're we lack tolerance. It's, and sort of those, one of those keywords for our day. Okay. Bridget. I recently came across the book, The Way of the Pilgrim. Wonderful work. I'm, I'm memorized, memorized or, by, or mesmerized by his desire for separating himself from the active world to desperately seek the concept of unceasing prayer. Yet he does not enter a monastery and wanders the earth mixing with others. Unceasing prayer is a commandment from God, correct? Right. The concept of exile seems unloving to the Eastern societies, especially in our country, where human contact is considered charitable. When we want to separate even from family and friends because they distract us from where we are sometimes accused of lacking charity, but it is well understood in Orthodox cultures that this is a great gift. I relate to what Robin just said, right? That's a wonderful example. You know, for those of you who might not be familiar with the way of the pilgrim, sort of a classic in uh, the spiritual tradition. Uh, we don't really know who the author of the text is, but it was a man whose wife had passed away, but he also had a physical disability that kept him from being able to get work very easily. Uh, but he had been reading the scriptures and had known about Paul's call, exhortation to pray without ceasing, and yet was struck, began, he set out to find someone who could teach him what this means, uh, to pray without ceasing, and begins to visit, out, you know, priest after priest, elder after elder, until he eventually comes upon one who talks to him about the Philokalia, the compendium of the writings of the fathers, who talk about the stillness of heart, solitude and how to cultivate uh, the unceasing prayer that then also allows that so solitude and silence to emerge. And uh, so this is often a good, good book to begin with in terms of understanding the, that call to unceasing prayer and the practice of the Jesus prayer because he begins to immerse himself in it deep, ever so deeply and, until it becomes as natural as his breathing. And I think what is so beautiful about it is it becomes this very powerful image and portrait of one who becomes prayer, that the Jesus prayer becomes like his breathing. And uh, so deeply does he immerse himself in it. And it can be a powerful example for us living in the world of how to gradually set ourselves to praying the Jesus prayer and stretching ourselves until it becomes 
more and more fluid for us, like our breathing. And uh, so setting oneself, we find him being told by the elder, okay, today you'll do 1,000 or three, and then bumps it up to 3,000. And eventually he's saying it 10,000 times. And eventually the, the number has no meaning because it has so formed and shaped his heart that no matter what he's doing throughout the course of the day, the prayer is being said at one level or another. So if on a surface level, he's engaged in some sort of work, still deep within the heart, there's this constant turning toward God. And so with exile that we're talking about here, it's allowing the, the room for that real, real to take place, but also to allow us to take hold of the spirit when it calls us to run, when we are inspired to draw close to God, and to a life of holiness and to the life of prayer, not to allow the things of the world, including our own anxiety and fears about things in the world to prevent us from praying. Joseph Carho. The idea of exile, separation to keep us inseparable to God reminds me of marriage, where one keeps themselves from others in order to be in union with one's spouse. Absolutely. You know, this radical commitment, uh, you know, that where one does not let anything come between uh, you and your spouse and protecting that relationship as precious and the most precious thing that God has given to you, that this is a gift of God, but it's also uh, a source of grace for you, your path to sanctity. And so to treat that relationship as it is. And so uh, to be ever attentive to one's spouse, to be ever attentive to how one is relating to one's spouse. And so that your mind never loses sight of them. You know, we were even told in seminary with, you know, the bravery, the divine office, that you were, it was your bride, your spouse, because you take her wherever you go that you never leave home without her, that because you, there's never a time when you would set aside that obligation to pray. And so this you know, nuptial imagery is a very important one. And this is why marriage stands out for us so powerfully. You know, this gift of self completely to another, where the two become one, you know, it's reflective of this relationship that we have with God and what he's made possible for us in and through uh, the Paschal mystery and in and through our participation in that mystery in, in the Holy Eucharist. There's no impediment. God has removed the impediments for us entering into that nuptial relationship. The, the, the church, the bride of Christ, being united with the bridegroom, the heavenly bridegroom, in and through the gift of the Eucharist, where he gives himself to his bride, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So absolutely, the exile, this separation, again, isn't simply separation from the world. It's a separation in order to draw close to what is life-giving. And, uh, and so, you know, when couples drift apart, we begin to see that relationship of intimacy begin to break down. And the same is true in our relationship with God. When the mind drifts or when we find ourselves drawn to other things that captivate our attention 
then we, you know, we begin to experience in our day-to-day life, God is sort of a distant figure or absent from the mind and heart altogether. And the exile, you know, is saying to us that we don't have this static position in that relationship. And not only is it precious, but if we don't engage in it, there's going to be a kind of atrophy there. And if we don't open our minds and our hearts to the spirit of God, then we are, uh, are going to be opening our minds and our hearts to the, the spirit of the world or the spirit of the evil one. Okay. Sam, regarding what Father shared earlier, saying that we should perhaps genuflect before a newly baptized baby, there's a beautiful story of St. Louis IX, the French king. After one of his babies was baptized, the saint is reported to have joyfully picked up his baby and gave the baby a kiss right where the baby's heart was and exclaimed, hello, Jesus. <laughs> That's wonderful. And, you know, I think our, our baptisms... You know, we, you know, with a little bit of water, we, we, we do think we do things a little bit in a minimalist way. And so uh, perhaps we don't find that kind of expression, you know, this kind of joyful expression in the story that you, you told there. But I witnessed uh, Father Miron's baptism of his son, Miron. And, uh, you know, there is this, you know, everything that surrounds it in terms of, of the right itself and the way that the child is immersed and that there's there's something that's deeply expressive of it and you know the the way that we pray really does express what we believe and so how we enter into our celebration of mass or the divine liturgy or something like baptism uh you know the actions of louis the ninth is louis the ninth here are really reflective of the mystery which he could see in and through faith that took place in this child's life. Hello, Jesus, because in fact, that's the reality. One more person joining in here. Okay, so why don't we move on to paragraph four. In hastening to solitude and exile, do not wait for world-loving souls because the thief comes unexpectedly. In trying to save the careless and indolent along with themselves, many perish with them because in the course of time, the soul's fire goes out. As soon as the flame is burning within you, run, for you do not know when it will go out and leave you in darkness. Not all of us are required to save others. The divine apostle says, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And again, he says, thou therefore that teachest any another, dost thou not teach thyself? This is like saying, I do not know whether we must all teach others, but we must most certainly teach ourselves. Great paragraph. And I think it opens up the, this idea of exile for us a little bit more clearly that part of our moving to that solitude, which moves us toward God, is taking hold again of the spirit uh, and th that has been given to us and the desire that the spirit fills us with, not to let the, the flame of that desire cool or to go out, to run uh, and take hold of it. This is always an important thing, you know, because if we 
just look at our day-to-day life, that we often will find ourselves shelving those moments of inspiration where we experience a, a very tangible and concrete call to say, respond to somebody in need. So we can see somebody maybe suffering or in tears or in need, and we'll glance, we'll acknowledge it, something will speak to us within our heart, but we will move on because we are so focused upon what we are doing or what we, our schedule or what we need to accomplish. Or the same with the call to prayer that we'll experience a, a a pull within us to immerse ourselves more deeply in prayer on a daily basis, but we'll say, I'll start tomorrow morning instead of starting right now at that moment of taking hold of that inspiration before it cools, uh, precisely for the, the reason that John says, because the thief comes unexpectedly, that none of us knows whether there will be a tomorrow. And so if we feel that call to give ourselves in love to another, or we feel that call to respond to, in love to God as he calls us to prayer, and we don't take hold of that, that might be our last opportunity within this world to do so. Uh, and so we, we want to take hold of that call to prayer right now. And again, it might be something that we need to force ourselves to do, or perhaps this uh, remembrance of death that the fathers speak of, and what he mentions here uh, is, is why it's so important. This mindfulness, memento mori, remember you shall die, remember you will die, that you know, this brings things into perspective for us very quickly. And I think it also it pushes to the side the anxieties and the fears that we have about so many things in our life and so many things that we can't control. You know, to watch the news, you know, it seems like the world is imploding, collapsing in on itself, and it can fill us with the, you know, this kind of insurmountable anxiety. Whereas in reality, what we are only responsible for is this moment and not letting this moment keep us from being focused upon what we need to be focused upon or what God is calling us to be attentive to. And when we do that, those anxieties can begin to diminish and drift away. Uh, everyone, the final part is an interesting section, I think important for our day about teaching oneself that you know, we, we can project, you know, the importance of the faith outward and fall into a kind of activism that certainly there are those that are called to teach and preach specifically. And all of us in our own life in one way or another are, you know, have this responsibility to bear witness to the faith, but we can't fall into a kind of activism where we neglect the life of prayer or we, we ne neglect this relationship with Christ where we really don't know him. And a couple of times we've talked about in this group, you can't give what you don't have. It becomes very difficult for us to bear witness to Christ or to talk about the gospel or to talk about faith when we really don't know it, when we haven't been taught ourselves or we have not learned from experience what it is to struggle with the passions or what, what it is to develop a deep and rich prayer life. So how can we teach others and then neglect our own 
spiritual life. This is a strong warning, especially for those who are priests, because it can become very easy for that role to become something that's functional. You know, that we begin to do on a day-to-day basis as if we're fulfilling any task and really not giving our, our minds and our hearts over to it. And, you know, that then, uh, you know, gives the, the words that we speak a kind of emptiness and an inability to inspire. Whereas the simplest of words coming from a heart of love are going to have the deepest impact. And that's true for all of us. And so we have to begin with that re- our own relationship with Christ and allow him to teach us and allow him to guide us to do what he desires us to do. And so even in the spiritual life, and one might even say, perhaps especially in the spiritual life, we cannot be willful about what it is that we're doing. We are always to be attentive to the will of God. What is God calling us to do? You know, whether it's in our service, our preaching, or in our prayer. And again, in this, we are are following the example of Christ himself. Uh, His food was to do the will of his father who sent him. And this is what we are to cultivate in our own lives as well. Any comments or questions about the paragraph? Ren. There's an interesting reversal at play here. Normally, when we say something is exiled, it is exile from something, someplace, a banishment from the good, the community, the kingdom. And the place of exile does not matter at all. Here, however, exile is an action taken for the sake of something. And the place of exile, that place in which the soul remains unseparated from God, is the only thing that matters. That's a wonderful way of viewing it. Because I think, you know, when we hear of somebody like uh, St. Athanasius being exiled, you know, he's, you know, put into a different country. He's removed from his community and his ability to function in his role. And so we see it as punishment. And so I think maybe when we hear something like exile, we, we hear that as well, that you know, this is going to be something that does not bring joy or freedom to us, but is going to imprison us. And in reality, it should bring us to the greatest joy. If the idea, is, as you said, is to move to becoming inseparable from God, the more that becomes the reality for us, then the greater the joy should be that wells up from from the heart. And so this is why, you know, those who are prayers and those who live in great solitude, and especially say for like the contemplatives, you know, the good gauge to see, you know, how they're living their life is the joy that emanates from them. Uh, that not to say that you know they're always walking around with a smile on their face, you know, grinning ear to ear, but that there is this kind of freedom within them, and that they begin to experience something of the, the joy of the kingdom that no one and no thing in this world can take from them. So even if it's great illness or trial, that they always have this bearing uh, of joyfulness about them. Mother Teresa was a great example of that. You know, even though she experienced darkness on one level, you know, in terms of consolation or lack of consolation, the real fruit of the depth of her her prayer, of her obedience to God, 
and setting herself apart to serve God and others was this joyfulness. She didn't experience it herself uh, so often on this tangible level, but she really became, a, you know, bore witness to it in a profound way to everyone that she, she met. But so that's a great point because it does turn things on its head. You know, they're, they're seeing something like exile, you know, as something that brings life. Much the same kind of reversal that turns the barren desert into a place of encounter with life itself. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Number five, and in going into exile, beware of the demon of drifting and of sensual desire, because exile gives him his opportunity. Well, the demon of sensual desire, I think, is clear, clear enough. Uh, the, the demon of, of drifting. Uh, I had a couple of thoughts about that. You know, certainly we could think about that in terms of the mind, you know, or what's going on within the heart. You know, the drifting of one's thoughts in that solitude, in that exile, uh, or the drifting from place to place, which was often seen by the monastics as not being a good thing, a kind of instability, that roaming, those kind of roaming monks that r rather than staying in their particular cell or their small community, a skeet or the snobium, the larger communities, there were certain monks that would go, go from place to place, travel from town to town. And, uh, and they weren't seen by other monks as being real monks at all for this reason, that they're driven more by this demon of this drifting, of this kind of instability that was reflective of an internal instability. They weren't really rooted in this relationship with God. And in that sense of being inseparable from him and focused upon him, but they, they gave way to this instability, you know, because they had not entered into it. Eric Chastain. How does exile give place to the demon of sensuality? Well, you know, I, I think if one is not guarded in, the, in one's heart, now, the whole point of the exile would be, as John said earlier, to be inseparable from God, you know, to have one's mind and heart, one's thoughts turned to him constantly, but to move away from that discipline, uh, to allow the mind and the heart to wander, uh, often it will wander to things within the memory and imagination, and when these thoughts are put together, then they become fantasy. You know, they are linked together in the mind. And so they become sort of like this running uh, story within the mind that can lead then a person into this kind of yearning to fulfill the desires of, of one's appetites. And so solitude can be the most dangerous place for a person who's not cultivated the discipline of, of, of prayerfulness, of watchfulness of heart, of moving the thoughts toward God through the, the arrow prayers, or who hasn't lived in obedience for a long period of time, in the sense of one who would be then willing to lay his, his thoughts before another in order to seek guidance and counsel. And so 
uh, entering into the life of solitude prematurely places one in great danger. Okay. Number six, detachment is excellent, but her mother is exile. Having become an exile for the Lord's sake, we should have no ties at all, lest we seem to be roving in order to gratify our passions. So exile, you know, this turning toward God in a radical way, separating from all things in order to become inseparable from him, then gives birth to detachment. It's the mother of detachment, of true detachment, that the more one becomes attached to God, and the, the one, the less one then becomes attached to the world. And so making, we see individuals like St. Anthony, for example, you know, hearing the, the call from the gospel in a very powerful way, you know, making this decision to leave home and to go off into the solitude of, of the desert. You know, he hears the words of Christ in a very powerful and personal way. And it's in doing this, this kind of radical break then, that he experiences this freedom, this detachment from the things of this world. And then with that then comes this ability for, you know, deep and constant prayer because he's un undistracted. And so it's, John is giving us sort of an insight here into how, how we, what the order of things, should be for us, that this exile are turning in a sense away from the things that do separate us from God. And this will lead us further into the text. You know, certainly the things that lead us away from God are our own passions. And so this turning away from the things that stimulate the passions, stimulate the appetites, or simply become a distraction, this allows then for detachment to emerge for us to more freely renounce the things in, in life that hold us back from God and allow us to, to run swiftly. So exile, it turns out, then is the mother of this break from the world. So we have to sort of make this backward movement now that he's taken us through the first step, first three steps. It's really ex exile that then leads to detachment and true re renunciation. And so, you know, how do we apply this to our own day-to-day -day life? And again, I think it is this kind of willingness to look at our life in a discerning way, you know, with the counsel of another, perhaps, uh, to see ways that we can simplify things, the ways that we are uh, overly attached to things that uh, would, would keep us from God and would keep us from prayer and gradually move to that simplicity. I think this is our exile. You know, we are removing ourselves from those things. Again, not as punishment, but in order that we might have this greater freedom in our life and especially for our life in Christ. And so he says, having become an exile for the Lord's sake, we should have no ties at all lest we seem to be roving in order to gratify our passions. So, you know, if, if we don't have this clarity in mind uh, and we, we simply withdraw, something is going to fill that emptiness. That like with fasting, you know, we, we fast 
in a particular way, the, to humble the mind and the body, but also that we might hunger and yearn for he who is the bread of life, the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. And similarly, I think with exile, you know, if we do this for the Lord's sake, then it is the Lord who accompanies us and draws near to us. But if we, we do this not for the Lord's sake, then we, you know, a kind of madness can emerge within us because then we become desperate. We become even more empty. Uh, and so say a person who's fasting, who isn't praying and hasn't made this connection with Christ who says, you know, an altogether new kind of fasting will emerge when the bridegroom is taken away. But when he's taken away, then they will fast. That it become the fasting will become a sign of our desire for him. But if we embrace this exile without that same desire, then when we experience that emptiness, then all sorts of other things are going to emerge. It's like the story from the gospel, for example, of cleaning the house, casting out a demon, cleaning, sweeping and cleaning the house, but not having Christ enter into that house, our hearts, and fill it. And then seven worse demons, we are told in the gospel, come back. And the, 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 the position of the person is worse at the end than at the beginning with the one demon. And so the same is true for a person who enters into this exile. If a, demon, if a, if a monk goes into the desert and isn't focused upon Christ and constantly turning to him, then his state can be worse than when he lived in the world. That perhaps he led a fairly disciplined and uh, even virtuous life in the world, but in an extreme way or an impulsive way enters into this solitude, exiles himself, and then he becomes open to demonic attack. And so, you know, in our lives, I don't think we're meant, you know, tonight to go into our homes and throw out all of our belongings or rip out all the books on our bookshelves and things such as that. Uh, I don't think many of us would probably be able to do that. Anyways, it would take me more than a night to get rid of my, my books, but uh, not to act in extremes. You know, I, I think, again, you know, we, we take these small steps you know, in light of where we are within the spiritual life. Ashley. Exile, being the mother of detachment, makes a lot of sense. Well, we've been talking about exile in a way that leads to greater intimacy with God, a direct confrontation with the passions and a renunciation of the world. I learned it in the other way, the other way around, that almost by proxy, a choosing of Christ over everything else in the day-to-day -day life, moment by moment, leads one to be exile by default. Is this the thought of the West, that one winds up in exile through intimacy with Christ, while the East encourages exile to find that intimacy with Christ? Uh, I don't know if it would be an Easter or Western thing. Let me think about that for a second. You're saying moment by moment leads one to be exiled by default. Is this the thought of the West? 
no, I don't think it's the thought of the West, because I think in the West, we see an equal number of saints who understood this, that this exile of making this break from the world, even though it was hard, gave them a kind of freedom. You know, a good example of that would be St. Francis of Assisi. You know, it was this radical poverty that he embraced that seemed like insanity to those around him, uh, and but led him to a kind of freedom that I think what most of us would fear, and certainly what his family feared, and the other townspeople feared for their own children when Francis started doing this, was that, you know, that they had all gone insane, or that, again, that this was extreme, but the break with the world gave him a kind of freedom to see things as they really were, as they really are. And I think that's part of this as well, that, you know, that we're able to see ourselves, God, the world around us and others as they are and as God sees them. And so often in our life, we're, we're seeing things through the lens of our things or what we're seeking to protect, even if it's our own emotional world, you know, that we seek to position ourselves in relationships in a certain way, uh, you know, that we maintain a position of emotional power over others. And we might not even be re realize it or be conscious of it. And I think Francis and then others East and West could see that very clearly when they just you know, where they let go of everything at one time and they began to see those things don't, don't have the meaning that I thought they had. You know, I, I, at one point in my life, I thought they were absolutely necessary for my happiness, for my joy. And much to my surprise, when they were, I let go of them, a, a great freedom, a burden was lifted from me. Not that life suddenly became easy. Certainly Francis's life of poverty, you know, was very difficult. And the asceticism of that was great. But the joy that he experienced was the joy of the kingdom, of, of living his life in Christ and being nourished upon that love. And I think this is what we, we fear. You know, it's very hard for us. You know, and, you know, for myself, too, I think the phone has become an appendage. And, uh, you know, and I rationalize it, you know, in terms of work and all this kind of stuff, because I do use it for work constantly. But I know I'm also attached to it in the sense of being able to see or be feel connected to what allows me I don't know, not to have to be attentive to other things or to God or how I'm living my life or whether or not I'm praying and or of being attentive to my own fears and anxieties. You know, it's we can veg out, we can tune out by tuning into something else. And, you know, before you know, they had cell phones, you know, I think in Fran Francis's day, it was, you know, s simply wealth and privilege. And, you know, when he let go of his grip on that, then a great freedom came to him. So, I mean, you, all of your comments, were, again, were extraordinary. And I, th I think it opens up the, the fathers, the Desert Fathers for us in a very important way. 
because I think when you, if we were to read this quickly the, all the way through, when we would come to something like exile or even the previous steps, I think there would be a part of us who would say, heck no, or this is extreme, or you know, this is something of a bygone age, or there's self-hatred here, or hatred of the world or of others. And when you begin to see that it is so deeply rooted in love and desire of the call to freedom in Christ, then I think we begin to, to listen to it in a deeper way. And I think John even acknowledges that, you know, right where we started tonight, paragraph two, he said, uh, you know, those who come to love the Lord are first unceasingly and greatly disturbed by this thought, you know, that there's, it's, it's agitating to think of letting go and following Christ, you know, to hear that word, follow me, and to do exactly that in our life. And, uh, and so even those who are intent, intent on pursuing Christ, it can be a deeply fearful thing to imagine. But thank you, everybody. Those wonderful comments and questions. Robin, you can end us here tonight. You have a thought? Uh, well, I, I know that we're going to end the group. So I just quickly wanted to say again, congratulations. I am beyond happy for you. Because you are exactly where you belong. So I, congratulations. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And pray for me, if you will. I do. It's, you know, every day's been joyful. You know, I've had a lot of peace. And as I said, Father Miron's been a great teacher. And, you know, the, the liturgy is the perfect place. I've, uh, you know, I knew for a long time that that was lacking. You know, in, in the sense of connecting the Eastern spirituality to the litur liturgical life. But every day, you know, I've only probably concelebrated or practiced the divine liturgy maybe eight times at this point. But each time I see more and I see, see the beauty of it. And so I, do, I feel very much at home. But keep praying for me. I have a lot to learn. And as I said, he's thrown me in the, in the deep end here. So by the end of the month is the goal to learn a whole new liturgy. <laughs> so you can imagine how deeply immersed I have to be. It's like learning a new language in some ways, but okay. Well, thank you again. When we close as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. And God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.